Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 128 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 128, uh, Scott and I are going to be talking about a couple of A3 rule concepts. Well, actually, really just one. And then talking about how to best prepare for one's first A3 meet, assuming that meet is going to be IOC. Uh, so if you so the question is basically how does one pre- best prepare for IOC, and then we're going to actually take some riffs on some events that have come out of basketball, the sport of basketball, and kind of relate them to things that are in quizzing or could be in quizzing or are not in quizzing and shouldn't be in quizzing, and we're just kind of kind of riff on some of those theories and kind of see how far down the rabbit hole we can go. But before that, I do want to make a uh, one big, well, not big announcement, just sort of a reminder announcement. So a reminder that in, what, five days, there will be a uh, the district meet at EBC for the uh, PNW, Saturday, January 14th. Uh, we're going to be starting at 8 a.m., run till 4 p.m., maybe a little bit after. Reminder that it's going to be on Acts chapter 1 through 13. Uh, the last, uh, you know, two, three, four chapters probably are going to be your best bet if you are looking for something to cram, because I have a feeling that a number of people took a few days off of study more than they should have over the Christmas New Year's break. So if you start to binge study this last few days on those last few chapters, I think that'll do you some good. Uh, We have a few more teams, or we have more teams uh, this meet than we did last meet, and fewer rooms. So the uh, prelim round needs to be a bit longer, and it's also going to be a little bit more compact than than last meet. So what this means is that uh, from the perspective of a team, you're going to have a little bit more in the way of buys in the schedule per team. So you're going to have a little bit more downtime uh, than you did in the previous meet, but the quizzes need to be pretty snappy. So we do need to stay, you know, pretty good on schedule or we're going to, you know, snowball things into the late evening and that's not going to be good for anybody. So this is going to be generally speaking an easier time in terms of the schedule for quizzers and coaches, but it's going to be more work and a little bit more stress for the officials, but that's okay. Cause you know, the, the officials uh, love their job. So we just ask, please everyone be a little bit early to your quizzes. Uh, if you at all ca- uh, can do so. And uh, just be prompt in your ability to get on stage uh, and get in your seats and get ready for the next quiz. That will help us out tremendously to be able to stay on schedule. All right. So with that all said, let's go into the first topic. I wanted to kind of dig into this a little bit and talk first about uh, A3 timeouts uh, versus A2 timeouts. So um, Scott, could you give us your high level summary of how A2 timeouts work? A2 timeouts, each team gets two 60-second timeouts. A team can only take one after question 17, which I think we always interpreted to mean... Actually, I have no idea what we interpreted to mean. If after if between 17 and 17A counted against your increment, or if only between after 17B, or if after 18, I, I, I have no idea how we interpreted it. Do you remember? I don't remember. We're pretty we're but, we're pretty casual about it, right? So anyway, each team got two 
um, 60 second timeouts within the 20 questions. Timeouts had some importance because that was the only time that you could sub quizzers unless there was a quiz out or an air out. Was there anything else you could only do during timeouts? I mean, that was the main time to talk to your team. You, you, you could say the exact same stuff in between questions as long as the next type has not been called. You, during timeouts, was the only time that a coach could bring a foul to the attention of the officials, I think. Maybe you could have said something at the end of a question. It, just regardless of when you brought it to the attention of the officials, they could not call a foul because of it. Which made me think of the devious thing. If you see a foul um, by your team as a coach, you immediately bring it to the attention of the officials, which means that they can't call a foul now. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's not really in the spirit of, of quizzing. I think that's it. We didn't give any extra ones for overtime. But really, the, the key mechanism was that's when... Right, right. And so related to that, in uh, A3, there are a lot of things, well, there are an absence of many things in A3 that exist in A2, which alter what you would use timeouts for. Like, why would you do a timeout? So like, for one thing, there are no subs in A3. There, there's no subbing. Subbing is not a consideration. There are no there are no air outs. You can air, an, well, not an infinite number of times, but you can air many more times in A3 than you can in A2. Uh, there are no air outs. So you would never call a timeout to sub somebody one way or the other or to replace an air out. Of course, you wouldn't have to do that um, with a, with a, with a, a timeout anyway, but nevertheless, and on top of all this base subtypes and translations will be known for every query and available to quizzers. So you're going to know ahead of the quiz, what every single numerical query numbers base subtype is going to be, whether it's a phrase or a chapter or a quote or a finish or whatever, you're going to know all of those things. You're going to know all of the uh, numerical query translations uh, assignments as well before the quiz. So there's no, you know, like need for a coach to go up there and say, okay, well, there's going to be a quote question within the next you know, three or four uh, questions or something like that, that that just does, isn't a thing. You're going to know uh, before the quiz ever begins, oh, uh, you know, question or query 10 is going to be a quote or query uh, nine is going to be a, a finish or something like that. You're going to know that before the quiz begins. And you could have that available to quizzers in the form of, say, a note even that they actually bring with them up, up with uh, up with them onto the platform or onto the, the chairs or wherever it happens to be. So, again, conferring with your team to remind them of these things is not really something that you're going to do in a timeout either. You can certainly, uh, but that's not really going to be useful. Um, coaches in A3 can offer instructions between queries. Um, you can do that publicly by just telling somebody, okay, jump now or not, right? And if you wanted to be covert about it, you could use, you know, some sort of baseball sign language-y thing uh, to confer, you know, to to convey some sort of secret information to your team. That's completely fine in, in A3. You can totally do that. Um, in A3, teams only get one timeout per quiz, at least currently. We may change that to two. Uh, but there are only 12 numerical queries uh, versus, say, 20 questions. So things are a little bit shifting there. So ultimately, what would you use 
timeouts for in A3, I think it's really to provide a mental... I think the biggest thing is to provide a mental break, right? And there are two reasons why you would want to provide a mental break. I think, number one, so that your quizzers can regroup. Like, if you've been hit with a couple of errors and the quizzers don't seem to be engaged, they're they're struggling to kind of get the pacing or something like that, you can, you can just break the the sequence of, of of queries and say okay great we're going to take a mental time out for a second we really don't need to do anything or say anything there's no strategy necessarily going on we're just taking a little bit of time where you can just kind of unplug your brain for a second restart get refocused and then start up again right so just kind of break the pattern up of uh let's say you know you're you're you're, you're jumping a little bit too fast you can call a timeout and you can say, Hey, you're jumping too fast. Now take the rest of this time that we have in the timeout to mentally get yourself into the frame of mind that you need to jump slower or whatever it happens to be. Right. And then the second reason, um, similar is to disrupt, uh, disrupt a flow state from another team. So if another team is alternating quizzers, uh, getting query after query after query, correct. And they are beginning to dominate the uh, the quiz on say query four five six seven. Uh, maybe it's time to call a timeout to break that team a little bit, like to to kind of break the flow of that team and force them to have to kind of restart and get back into that flow state again. That's a little bit harder to do, but it is one potential option. Uh, Scott, what are your what are your thoughts on all that? So. On disrupting another team's flow state, I do think that that can be a valuable use. I always liked to use it not after another team had done something really consequential. I loved if another team had gotten two in a row, three in a row, three out of the last five, something. If I had the luxury of waiting until my team got a question, I would love to call a timeout then because it kind of removes a lot of the good vibes going into the timeout for that opposing team who had been on a nice run. Sometimes you don't always have that luxury. And I do know that extensive research has been done in sports really dispelling any notion of the hot hand or momentum. I don't know how much research has been done in youth sports, but it seems to me that all things being equal, uh, high schoolers and younger kids probably have more uh, emotional state swings than somebody older. Yeah, and say so that's true. <laughs> yeah, I I I think that there could be more ability for these momentum runs. I've seen quizzers who don't average a whole lot of correct questions. They get one right, they're immediately more engaged, more positive for the very next jump than they were before it obviously affected them extremely positively to get one right. And I would imagine that there is some semblance of momentum, right? Each question is not a 100% independent event. Also, this is probably less of a thing in, in quizzing, but at least in, in spectator sports, I think a potential factor of momentum is the crowd. And calling a timeout significantly reduces the the crowd noise. So that's something... Not that's indirectly related to the actual competitors on the playing field, but I think it could be a source of flow and stopping the flow for another team. Yeah, I mean, in terms of of crowd control uh, or audience control, I think 
the inverse of what you're talking about could happen in finals, right? Like, like you can call a timeout and get showered with applause from, for, or, or, you know, cheers and whatever from the audience, especially entering into the uh, returning back into, you know, quiz time, right? The, 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 the cheers that you can get right as they're calling scores out right before you begin the next uh, question, or in this case, the next query. I think that could be a, a nice mental boost as well. Yep. Now, an interesting thing about age three is that all of the query types, the base subtypes are known in advance. They, is there a set kind of minimums and maximums that will occur or is it completely deterministic? Um, it's completely deterministic. So there's no minimums and maximums. The order in which currently, this may change, but the, the currently the order in which they are sequenced is random, but it is known. Right. So it is, the order is random, but known. I'm curious how people respond to that. I think it definitely, it rem, it removes an in-quiz strategy opportunity because it's unknown until it happens. So if that paired with no subs removes a lot of the potential in-game strategy for a coach at a high level of quizzing, which might remove some fun, but mainly maybe removing it from the coach and not from the participants. <laughs> um, to a degree, I think it adds the ability to actually go after deterministic strategies versus indeterminate uh, strategies, right? So you could say, well, we know ultimately there are strategies that can happen based on the minimums and maximums as you approach the end of a quiz in A2, because you can say, oh, well, we need to have a certain minimum of this particular question type. We've only had in number of this question type. Therefore, in the next however many questions, we know there will be this many of this type, you know, these kind of things. So you can start to plan for that and start preparing for that to a degree, but it's only towards the end of a quiz that you can start planning and preparing for it. And it's still not entirely deterministic until you get very near the end of the quiz, like question 19 and 20, you may not know what the question type on 19 is, but you can say, well, well, it, I mean, maybe sometimes you can, if 19 and 20 are the, uh, of the same uh, type, but you can, you can get closer to that certainty as the quiz ends. And so you start hearing coaches talk more about what question types will be coming up and who needs to be mentally prepared for those things. Whereas knowing what the types are in advance, the coach can actually prep their quizzers before query one, even to say like, oh, guess what? Query two is going to be a quote question. So I want you, uh, Jimmy Bob, to jump on query two, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And and they can be doing this ahead of the of the quiz. In fact, they could be doing it before they even walk into the room. It's like, OK, well, you're going to be uh, competing against team A and team B. And we competed with team B uh, twice before this meet. And remember that, you know, quizzer three on their team is really good at this type of, you know, question or query. So I want you to do blah, blah, blah sort of thing in this upcoming quiz, because here are, you know, so think query number four and query number seven are your queries to really jump fast on, but I want you to slow down on query five. You can plan all of that stuff out as a coach. And so like it, to me, it seems like there's tremendously more opportunity as a coach to be a coach. Interesting. Here's a question for a thought question. As more knowns are introduced into a quiz, 
as far as the types, when they will occur, any other info that you might be able to get about the questions. The more knowns that you have, I, th- I think int- introduce opportunities for very specific kinds of study. And on the flip side, the less, the fewer knowns that you have, the more you have to stick to just really, really general knowing the material and knowing it really well, which might be the ideal thing to incentivize. Yeah, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think it depends on what those known knowns are going to become, right? So like, I don't know that knowing the query base type actually alters how you're going to study because you know in every because every quiz is going to be a, a you know random assortment of a specific set of base subtypes right so the number of those base base types aren't going to change it's just that the ordering is going to change right so how you study doesn't really whether you know the order or you don't know the order that just doesn't change how you study um and like you know, could you then say, well, based on a certain query type, I want to specialize in that query type, um, maybe, but at the same time, like, I don't know that it really does you any good knowing things versus not knowing things. Um, I think what you can do is you can add certain strategies if you know things that you can't really add by not knowing things, but I don't know that you prepare any differently. I think you prepare based on the material because you have to memorize the material for sure. Otherwise like everything else is just, you know, icing on the cake. Um, and if you don't have the material, then you don't have a cake. So you got to memorize the material. And then beyond that, I think, you know, list making list study based on the query based subtypes based on the query, uh, quizzer selected subtypes also. Right. So like, really important to be able to, if you can get versus memorized word perfect and be able to answer them verbatim, uh, so much the better. Like that's a tremendous, you know, superpower right there. Being able to include a reference on your, you know, quizzer selected subtype, that is a superpower. That's an extra point every question if you can do it. Um, so that's uh, that's a great way to, to study there. But I mean, is there, are there any strategy are there any are there any study differences by knowing or not knowing? I don't think so. I think it's really just more the implications of the rule set say you should try to get as verbatim as much as possible of the material with reference, right? I think so. I have a lot more to say on this, but it it basically would require us jumping into our very next main bullet. Yeah, so so maybe we should jump into the next bullet. Um, and, and and I sort of let the cat out of the bag here, but the, this is actually a question that came in. So I've been communicating, as you can imagine, I've been communicating with various program leaders across the you know U.S. and Canada a lot uh, the last couple of weeks or so. And uh, there was a, a question that I got from a couple of different, they weren't phrasing the question this way, but, but it was sort of a theme of some of the questions that they were having, which was essentially how to best prepare for the IOC meet, right? Um, so based on their quizzing in A2 in their various different forms, whether that's, you know, CMA, FM, NAS, what have you, right? They're quizzing in their various different forms and they're contemplating participating in IOC and everybody seems to be either somewhere on the spectrum of interested, excited, all the way up to very interested, very excited for IOC. And so they're 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 thinking through like, well, okay, we've still got our current A2 season to deal with. 
at what point do we transition our quizzers over to thinking about A3 and how do we do that in the most advantageous way? How do we best prepare them uh, for IOC? And uh, some people were like, well, maybe we need to start drilling them on how IOC stuff is going to work starting now. And I actually have a different point of view on that. I don't think there's anything necessarily bad about preparing for IOC now and studying the rule book and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know that it's going to make a big difference. I think because we are, you know, there is a fair bit that can be that can be prepped upon early, right? So we're going to be multi-translation. That's totally new. That's innovative. Uh, we have different query types, obviously. Uh, so that's totally new and innovative. We have different ruling mechanisms. It, the goal is to have 100% objective everywhere, all the time. Uh, and that's different. Although from a quizzer's perspective, probably not really different at all it's just that they can expect it's more work well i don't know it's not more work on the officials it's different work on the officials from the quizzers perspective though they should be expecting that a ruling they get in one room with one quiz master will be the same ruling they get with any quiz master in any room that that's ultimately the goal of having you know full objective rule sets but that's going to be there but again not really something that a quizzer necessarily needs to prepare for. Scoring is going to be different. There's definitely some strategies that you want to think through uh, in terms of maximizing your scoring. So like what, what Scott was saying last episode about like A3 is really about maximizing point uh, earnings. Uh, I think that's absolutely true. And uh, so you definitely want to be thinking through those things. But those things don't take a ton of time, right? And in fact, actually, I've got some people who are contemplating even now uh, uh, about writing, well, they're not contemplating about writing. They have decided they are going to write strategy guides for A3, and they are contemplating now how to go about doing that and, and essentially contemplating the strategies that they're going to put in these strategy guides. So in, in effect, uh, you know, in probably a month or two, there will be some, say, draft versions of these strategy guides getting published so that by the time you get to like April and May and so forth, and certainly by June, quizzers will actually have strategy guides that they could read and pick up ideas for how to maximize scoring and how to deal with different query types or how to deal with different translations and all that kind of good stuff, right? So ultimately, how does one best prepare for IOC? I honestly think the best way to prepare for IOC, and I, I would say this to P&W quizzers as I would any other quizzers anywhere who want to participate in IOC, I think the best way to, to prepare is to memorize as many verses as close to verbatim as you can with references. If you have that, if you prioritize that, and, I, and of course, with references is something that, depending upon the program that you're in right now, maybe references aren't as important as they are in A3, right? In A3, on phrase and, and chapter and finish questions, you can get an extra point if you include a reference, right? So there's actual value to memorizing those references there. They're, they're not a majority value, but there's, there's some additive value there. So memorizing as many verses as you can. And the key thing, though, is that verbatim thing. If you can get a verse recited verbatim versus synonymous, you know, and and if you include a reference, that's a difference between say two points synonymous non-reference versus five points verbatim with reference. That's a pretty giant swing. And so, in terms of being able to do well in IOC, 
that's more important than I think almost any other component of preparing for IOC. Like, should you study the rule book at some point? I, well, I, I don't know. Study is probably too strong a word. Should you read the rule book at some point? Yes, you should definitely read the rule book uh, before before you quiz. Should be should you be thinking about the ruling mechanism scoring? Should be should you be thinking about how multi translation works? Absolutely. Should you be thinking through what you want your open book material reference to be? You know, um, how you want to structure that printed material that that may be used if you elect to or if another quizzer elects to on your team. Thinking through those things ahead of the meet, very important. But again, I think that's something you could probably wait till May or even June and it probably doesn't make a big deal. Uh, And I wouldn't spend a ton of time invested in it. But memorizing as many verses as close to verbatim as, as you can with reference, that's that's going to make a huge difference uh, when it comes to IOC. I, I very much agree. So I think with the rules changes around the query-based subtypes and the quizzer-selected types and the differences in scoring, if I was coaching an IOC team, I would want them to be very familiar with what they will hear and have to do during a quiz. As far as hearing query 1A is base subtype X, and I would also want all my quizzers to know very specifically what types, what base subtypes are they gonna jump on, and what are they going to select as a quizzer selected subtype. I would love it if that can be determined and static for my team before the quiz, before the, the meet begins. Because I do think there's additional complexity there. And I do not want my quizzers figuring out during the meet if they want, like, what level of quizzer selected subtype they want to select. I want them to have to have marching orders to select a given subtype based on the base subtype, you know, whatever we've decided. And then if it changes during the meet, it would be with my help. Because I don't want them to have to worry about those details. I just want them to worry about answering a query and getting it correct. Right. Absolutely. Well, and I mean, it kind of depends on the strength of the team too, right? So if you have a team that can go full material verbatim, then yeah, I mean, absolutely tell them every single question, go verbatim with reference. Like, like if, if you, if you have a team that, that, that is that strong, tell them anytime that you can add verbatim, anytime that you can add reference, do it right. Because if you get it incorrect, you get zero. Uh, And that's not good because not so much because zero is bad, but because the other teams have an opportunity to uh, gain traction on you uh, with a B or a C uh, query. But rather the verbatim is without the reference verbatim is is twice the points as a all other things being equal. It's twice the points of uh, synonymous. Right. So if you have a team that's capable of hitting verbatim, just always go for it now. The question then becomes, well, okay, if your team isn't strong enough to have 100% material verbatim, are they strong enough to have certain chapters verbatim, right? And to say like, well, I can have these sets of chapters verbatim. And then again, you, you make the calculation to say, okay, then for those chapters, whenever you get a query of, from those chapters, go verbatim, otherwise always go synonymous. But again, it's, it's exactly what like what you're saying, Scott. It's, it's like... You work with a coach to determine this strategy and then you follow that strategy and you only make adjustments to that strategy based on 
what you actually encounter on the quiz uh, in the quizzing and then to say like okay our assumptions are incorrect so we're going to change our strategy you know these these kinds of things again the other similar very 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 similar to a2 is going to be the speed at which you jump right so in a3 there are going to be opportunities to do syllable based jumping absolutely so i mean obviously quote questions very syllable based uh, finish questions, even multi-translation, I think you can study a multi-translational list of beginning syllables, and you can start to get pretty decently fast on syllable jumping for finish questions, even multi-translation. For phrase and chapter, well, chapter might be possible, but for phrase, it may be very difficult in a multi-translational universe to do syllable based count jumping, you have to do recognition. And so that's where you got to say like, okay, well, if it's a phrase uh, query, jump on recognition, but expect that that should happen probably around word in, right? And I have no idea what that, what that in number is going to be because I haven't done the analysis. Uh, but like, that would be something that I think a coach could be doing is building that analysis and say, okay, on average, think about word in as being when you want to jump, generally speaking on a phrase, and then you'll prob you'll have this probability of recognition and therefore boom. Right. And then, and then the rest, as they say, is as a formality. Yeah. So that is all, I, I failed to mention that earlier. That should also be something that a coach helps their quizzers with to have a plan before IOC. It is obviously more important the better your team is, but I would say you should have a plan regardless of the ability of your team so that they don't have the cognitive overhead of figuring out a plan on the fly. That plan will sh should include what base subtypes they're jumping on, at what speed, and if they win the jump, what quizzer selected subtype they will select. I have two questions for you, Griffin. Are quizzers able to do open book and synonymous for quote and finish questions? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That is different for sure. And I had glazed over that. And for quote questions, is a translation specified or can a quizzer pick because no part of the translation specific material is read during the prompt? Yeah. So this is a very interesting point. So there is no translation i mean there there is a translation that is stated in the in the announcement for the query right so you know query 2a is a quote from the niv right however the quizzer always answers by default from their registered translation now this is not something that's particularly clear in the existing rule book it's kind of hinted at in section three somewhere under registration i think it's like 3.1 or something like that so this this definitely needs to be more adequately <laughs> described and prescribed in the rule book but a quizzer is always answering from well it, okay the the quizzer is typically answering from their own translation the translation under which they were registered for the meet however there is some discussion around the possibility of giving quizzers the option to flip translations on the fly to essentially declare a different translation for a particular query if they want to now this is probably something that will very rarely ha if ever happen but I don't necessarily see any downside to allowing the quizzer to say register under NIV, hear a particular query a few times from the ESV, recognize it, 
and then answer, decide to answer the, the, the query from the ESV, right? So uh, again, they would just claim ESV just like they would claim verbatim or with reference or whatever, right? Or open book for that matter, right? Um, so it would be a similar thing to that. But ultimately, the idea being that generally speaking, you're answering, you're responding to a query from your translation, regardless of the query. So in a quote, you know, query, I'll, I'll claim, I'll not a claim. I will announce as a quiz master, I'll announce, you know, it's a quote query from the NIV, but of course you could respond in the NASB, the ESV, whatever you, you registered under or, or decide to claim that's fine. The interesting thing is then under other, uh, question, uh, sorry, query types, that still holds. And so like under a phrase query, you will get a phrase from an announced translation, but you can respond. And the expectation is that you will respond in your local translation, whatever that happens to be. So like if you memorized NIV and I announced query 3A is a phrase from the ESV, ready begin, and I start the, the, the prompt, when you hit recognition, you can say verbatim with reference and respond from the NIV. And so that's an option open to you. Very interesting in that. I'm glad you said that. I did not realize that. And it informs what I'm about to say next, which is the optimal strategy. I agree that it's knowing as much of the material as well as possible. But this is flowing from our previous discussion of certainty versus uncertainty. I think while some things are more certain in age three, for example, all the base subtypes are known and the order in which they will occur. There are lots of things that are less known than age two. One being, actually, is the translation for each query known in advance? Yeah. Yes, it is. So it is known, but unless you study multiple translations, there are a f less than 100% of the questions of the queries in a quiz that are of your translation. So there is less known than in age two in that regard. There's also fewer base subtypes, which means each of the base subtypes cover, well, and also by design, they cover a, a large amount of material. In age two, there were some subtypes that covered very specific either bits of material or types of material which would allow quizzers to very specifically localize their study or augment their full content study with list work to give themselves edges. Additionally, queries in age three can start almost anywhere on phrases and chapter reference questions, which was not the case in age two. You could, even for interrogatives, write a reasonably exhaustive interrogative question list and cover 80% of the questions that you're going to hear. To cover 80% of the possible phrase queries you'll, you'll hear in age three, you might need 24,000 queries. Yeah, yeah, it would be quite right? a number. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so there's just, because of the sheer volume, there's very little extra to be gained from list work, which throws even more focus back on knowing the material and knowing it really well, because... This is not the perfect analogy, but I was an economics major, and one of the kinds of unemployment is structural unemployment, which means there are lots of people who want jobs and lots of open jobs, but there's not a match in skills or location between them. And 
I can see that happening, a similar thing happening in H3, where a quizzer might know a verse incredibly well in one translation, but it gets asked in a different translation. Now, Griffin saying that if you're able to identify it, you are allowed to switch translations kind of mitigates some of that. So I think it moves a little bit. There, There is some more list work or specific translation work you can do that would be beneficial. But it could be that stuff you've learned doesn't get asked in the translation that you are familiar with or most familiar with. Yeah, that's very true. Well, and I mean, the other thing before I forget, I do want to point out that the the fact that phrases, and I say that phrases, fra- uh, let's call them prompts, I guess, but basically a, a phrase that could exist in as a prompt for a phrase query or a chapter query, uh, these are, or, or I guess even a you know a finish query. Um, it's it's just that a finish query you you know with certainty that a finish query will begin at the beginning of the verse, whereas you don't. Uh, that could happen, but it's very unlikely to happen for a phrase in a chapter, right? Uh, queries the the fact that they say let's let's just say, stick with a phrase query to keep it simple. So in a phrase query with a phrase, that phrase can start almost anywhere. There are some limitations where it can't, but it can start almost anywhere. And as a result, sometimes that that starts in ways that are that are seemingly a little clunky that don't necessarily roll directly off the say the first or second word. That's actually an advantage to people who are uh, who have memorized any translation other than the translation from which the query is generated, because it kind of prov- th- that call it an awkward start. That awkward start hiccups the flow a little bit from the way somebody who has memorized in that translation is thinking about that verse. And it slightly disadvantages them relative to somebody who is going to be thinking about content from a recognition of the theme of the content, otherwise known as somebody who's quizzing outside that translation. And so as a result of that, the person who is who has memorized the translation from which the query originates is still going to be an advantage at an advantage to the person who memorized a different translation. That's that's clear, right? But they will be at less of an advantage because even somebody who has memorized nearly everything uh, pretty well, it's going to be harder for them to recognize it other than otherwise because of the random location start. They're going to have to think about it thematically or they're going to have to think about it in terms of memorizing, say, two and three unique, uh, sorry, two or three word unique phrases globally from the, the from the material, right? So if you ha- if you're going to be doing study work, uh, list work, getting a list of unique phrases from uh, unique two and three word phrases from their uh, from their material is going to be extremely valuable uh, uh, study tool. Again only useful after you have the verses memorized as close to verbatim as you can with reference, right? And so that all kind of ties back to this notion of like, yeah, ultimately at the end of the day, A3 is very different than A2, very different, right? But it's in at every step of the turn, it's designed intentionally to encourage memorization uh, as close to verbatim as you can with reference across everything. Right. There's also fewer queries. I don't know if because you go to A's and B's immediately, if the gap will be smaller than we think. I I seem to recall my data said 20 question quizzes in age 
to averaged around 24 to 25 asked questions a mm -hmm. quiz. I don't know if an age, which was what, about a 20% increase maybe? I don't know if in age three, a 12 query quiz is going to average 14 or 15, or if because it starts immediately, it might average 16, 17, 18, and then actually not be quite as different as age two, especially with the differences in some of the differences in quiz out ceilings. But do you want to touch on that? Yeah, I'll touch on that really briefly. So I've done some simulations here. Um, I've done some play testings of this and the, the, there's a lot of Delta there where I don't, I don't think the play tests, I think the play tests are useful for some things, but I don't think they're useful for calculating this because people are still getting comfortable with the, the newness of, of some of these rules. But in the Sims that I put together, essentially what it comes down to is that A3 quizzes are going to be slightly, there will be slightly fewer queries than A2 quizzes. Um, assuming an error rate, and I forget all the different machinations that I did, but let's say assuming an error rate of like 25% or, or, and I'm just making up these numbers here, but let's say there's an error rate of around 25%. Let's say you get a, an age two quiz that goes to like 24. And again, I'm, this is, these are not the actual numbers. I don't have them in front of me, but let's say you end up with an age uh, uh, two that goes to 24 questions, an equivalent age three would go to like 21 questions or 20 questions or something or queries, sorry, uh, something along those lines, but the queries themselves are going to be slightly longer because there are certain interrupts that you can do in a two that you can't do in a three. So for example, in a two, you have a question, which means you have a, an answer, which means you can provide incorrect information. And so if a, if a quizzer provides in, incorrect information, they can be counted incorrect immediately. Um, now, not every quiz master does that, but theoretically they should, right? And so that kind of short circuits the time there. In A3, you can be out of context in certain for certain queries, but you can't provide incorrect information because there are no answers. There are only responses. So it be, it allows you to be more objective, but as a result, there aren't quite as many like hiccups, not hiccups, short circuits of the full timer uh, for queries. So a query is not exactly equivalent to a question in terms of an individual atomic unit of time. There are going to be slightly fewer uh, queries than there will be questions, but the queries will end up being slightly longer than questions. So in the end, it's probably going to be pretty close. Sure. But I wasn't even thinking of the time. I was just thinking of the competitive implications for a quizzer, right? Trying mm -hmm. to maximize scoring, looking at how many opportunities am I, am I going to get and how do I orient my studying? And I think that because less is known in that it's harder to specialize on a type and really, really increase your odds of getting that type, say on situation questions or chapter versus reference questions. In H2, there are, th there are things that you can do to make it way more likely that you will win the jump and get those questions correct. In H3, there's not the similar sorts of opportunities on phrase questions, chapter reference questions, quotes and finishes, and even cross-reference. There's, I think there's less opportunity to do that. And so because of that, and I mentioned the potential mismatch between translation type and what you know, 
I think it is of the utmost importance if you ever win a jump that you get points and you get as many points as you can. So I think it very, very strongly – like I think the best strategy is to memorize material and do not memorize additional material until you are guaranteed if you win a jump on the material that you've memorized – and can locate it, right? So it's not like, oh, I jumped on the, and it happens to be in a verse that I memorized, but you can't locate it, of course. But if you can locate it, you should not just get it correct. You should get it correct verbatim with the reference. And I, I would honestly not move to memorizing more verses unless you can do that. Because the breadth of work that it, that is required to get a couple synonymous questions correct, knowing that there might be this mismatch between what you're asked and there's only 12 queries, man, I'm just thinking like, how can I try to average one four pointer a quiz and then move on from there? Yeah. So like, I, I mean, I don't disagree. I mean, certainly the impetus is, or, or the, the focus really should be on memorizing and, and maximizing the quality of that memorization. Absolutely. Right. There's no substitute for it. It is the first 80, 90% of, of everything, probably even more than, more than that, honestly. Um, so if you're going to skimp anywhere, skimp on everything except memorization, right? Um, don't, don't study the rule book in exclusion of memorization. Don't do list work in exclusion of memorization. All of those things are potential value adds, but they're the frosting on the cake. Uh, don't skimp on the, on the cake. Um, but... And actually, an, another big thing is that getting a question correct, a query correct, ideally on an A, means that that question is, that query is gone for your, your two opponents. Yeah, exactly. Error, and that's, I guess that's, that was my point, is you were, you were referring to uh, 12 queries only per quiz. That is true to a point. The thing is, Queries can't be taken away from you via error, right? So queries can only be taken away from you via correct responses from other teams, right? So yes, right, right. there's only 12 queries, but you have more opportunity against those 12 queries versus if they were 12 questions. So it's probably better to think of them as more like 18 to now, 18 or 19 questions worth of queries uh, exist in 12 queries. But I mean, that's going to be highly dependent upon, you know, who you're you're jumping against. And here's the other thing. Based on teams coming from A2 to A3, this first IOC meet is going to be very different than, say, the IOC meet in like four years from now, right? In four years from now, these strategies will be ironed out and people will have a really good idea or, well, at least a much better idea of of uh, trigger speeds and and that sort of thing in i would expect in ioc that the initial trigger uh speed will be too fast people will want to trigger based on synonym counts and i think they can't do that i think they well okay you can on quotes clearly i think you can mostly do that on finishes but I think on other query types, you need to slow down to, if not recognition, like a lot closer to recognition. I think that if you're going to do syllable counts, it has to be a lot higher of a number than what people are used to in A2. Yep. So the fact that an age 
H3 incorrect query goes immediately to a B. That's what I was getting at when I said it seemed on average an age two quiz had about 20% quest of asked questions more than 20. And I was wondering what that extra percentage would be in age three. It's definitely going to be higher than 20, but I don't know if it's going to be 40 or 50%, right? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the, the, the way you're calculating it or the way you're saying it. I don't know the numbers there. I, I want to say in in the, the the Sims that I ran, and this is like a few weeks ago, so of course I don't remember precisely, but I want to say like, given a particular error rate, if there was a 24 question uh, A2 quiz, it would be the equivalent, it would, you would expect in A3 to have something like a 19 query uh, quiz, 19 or 20 query uh, quiz in A3. Right. Interesting. But, oh, I had another thought. Now I'm losing thoughts. But I, I just, oh, the, the speed. Yeah, because in age three, you are much more rewarding error. No, sorry. I'm I'm mixing two thoughts. It really rewards excellent top-notch knowledge of the material over winning jumps. Yes. Where, again, I mean, I probably sound like a broken record, but in a large percentage of the internationals meets that I observed between 2012 and 2020, everyone jumped at roughly the same speed. Some teams were scoring 40 points a quiz and some teams were scoring 150 points a quiz, but they all jumped within a half syllable because maybe you jump on who was or the one or Jesus, but maybe you jump on tour the or um, red who or something that's incredibly unique. And if you were a team that had pretty poor relative it was still plenty of material knowledge to get those questions right. And if in a given quiz, you just happened to win seven jumps and four or five of them was on that unique stuff, you would get them right. It was it was just that over the course of the entire quiz meet, the teams that did know the material better would get more right kind of at the fringes on less unique phrases, but were still unique enough. And, but... The types of questions, because they were generally unique in three syllables max, in you had to jump that fast. That was the game that was being played. And so the largest component of scoring was winning the jump. It was not material knowledge. Age three is very different. It does you no good to win a cross-reference jump on four syllables when the entire phrase of the cross-reference is eight syllables, because you have almost no information of how to answer this cross-reference question. And that applies to phrase questions. And you just, you, so much is now thrown into having the material knowledge to execute once you've won a jump. And I just don't think that that was the case for so many age two questions, especially like at internationals. There were definitely types where you would see an incredible Finnish quizzer jump on one and a half syllables and make an incredible, the, the smartest guess and be rewarded for it. And you could see, oh, that was just oodles of preparation and they were rewarded for it. But you also saw quizzers that you knew were in the bottom 25% of material knowledge jump on two syllables on maybe a W and get a unique word on the second syllable and get it correct. And you knew that that wasn't because of their material knowledge. That was because of dumb luck. And I think there's a lot less opportunity for that in age three because of 
where the queries start, the fact that you have to answer to the end of the verse, the fact that it's not about getting them correct, it's about maximizing point scoring on them. So bombing up on two syllables and getting it synonymous right almost does you no good at the highest levels. Yeah, indeed. Well, and I mean, there's always... And I mean, obviously, I agree with everything you said, um, both practically and philosophically. I just want to throw in one sort of, not caveat, but a sort of an addendum thought. One thing you can do when you are triggering an A3 is you can, you know, you get up, you think about what you're, you're defaulted to synonymous. So basically you don't say anything. You get up based on whatever information you get from the trigger. You think about it. If you can locate the material, then you then have to say to yourself, well, okay, do I want to go verbatim uh, or do I want to stick with synonymous? What's my, you know, now that I've located the material, do the source uh, of the of the of the query do i feel confident in being able to respond to this verbatim versus synonymous and you can make that judgment call but the other thing to keep in mind is like if you're i don't know five seven eight seconds into your response period and you're like you know i don't know where this is maybe you call open book and try to find it try to look it up. I mean, worst case scenario, you get a zero, right? But maybe you can squeeze out one point versus getting a zero and better to do that than to get an error uh, and let your your other, your, your competitors uh, have a points opportunity based on that same, uh, you know, a query number. Right. So that that's a tough one because I imagine coaches cannot signal mid query to... <laughs> They're quizzers, but yeah. you would almost want if a coach could make the call 12 seconds in go open book, you kind of want the ability to do that because at the I mean, at the everything but the highest level, it probably doesn't matter a ton. But at the highest levels, once your probability of getting it right drops below a certain amount, you want to prevent other teams from getting this numbered question correct at all costs. Right. Well, and to me, I think that's it's less about the coach signaling the quizzer during the response period, which, of course, is is going to be illegal. Um, now, exactly how to enforce that, I, I don't know. I don't really want to figure out how to foul a coach. But but yeah, the the maybe I foul the quizzer on behalf of the coach or something. I'm not really sure how that would work. I need to think through those implications. But ultimately, we don't want to allow coaches to mouth or parents, for that matter, to mouth the words to the quizzer that would be totally not okay um but uh but i think definitely before the quiz before the meet coaches need to be preparing their quizzers around that strategy of saying okay if you get up there and you just draw a blank uh i want you to take a peek at the countdown clock if uh, hopefully there's one available to within view but i mean after you get a sense of like you've spent seven, 10, I don't know, like pick a number. But after you've spent a certain number of seconds trying to locate the material, if you haven't come up with where it is, drop to open book. Um, because I mean, open book, once you locate the material open book, it's, you know, obviously it's trivial at that point. You just read um, really quickly, but clearly so that the uh, QM can hear you. But locating the information in the reference material is not necessarily trivial depending upon what you're i mean obviously if you're talking about a 
quote query, certainly that's trivial. But if you're talking about like anything else, it's not trivial and in some cases extremely difficult. So if you if you're going to go open book, you want to give yourself you don't want to give yourself 10 seconds. <laughs> you want to you want to give yourself really close to 30, maybe even a little bit more because you figure like maybe you need 5 to 6 seconds to read it. But you need a good 10, 15 plus to to locate it, maybe even 20 seconds to locate it. So, you know, it starts to it's time gets starts to get pretty tight when you're 10 seconds in. When you say drop down to open book, that means that the quizzer has not selected a quizzer selected subtype, correct? Absolutely. Because once you claim verbatim, you're you're verbatim. Uh, So you can't undo that. But it also means that you cannot begin answering verbatim without specifying, because once you specify verbatim, only things that you say after that specification can count towards your verbatim correct answer. Yes, correct. So you have to be pretty, like, if you jump and take 10 questions to consider whether you will be able to get this verbatim, you have to, or however long you take to decide that silently, you have to be very confident that you can complete it in your remaining time. So right. there's actually there's a lot of potential complexity there, which if I could if I could do it, I would help my quizzers by not giving them the choice, hmm. right? By I mean, of course, like giving them the choice before a, a meet happens, but like reduce that mental overhead so that they know exactly what they have to execute on once they're in a quiz. Right. Well, I mean, so in one of the play tests, there was uh, one particular qu- uh, quizzer who, you know, pretty good quizzer. Uh, he jumps on something that he recognized. It was from his local translation. He wasn't really sure where it was. Claims verbatim, and he ended up getting it incorrect. And it was an interesting strategic choice. And I think he made the right strategic choice because he basically claimed verbatim because he said, well, if I can locate this, I will probably be able to get it uh, verbatim, uh, but I haven't quite located it yet. And he just wanted to get that mental sort of hurdle out of the way. And he knew like, well, if I go, if I go open book, I'm only going to get one point. I, if I get an error, I'm, that doesn't count against me towards my ceiling. But if I claim open book, cause this was like, I don't know, his first or second response or something like that. So if he goes open book, he's like, well, I'm limiting my ceiling down from my, my full ceiling. If I, if I stay away from open book, so I'm going to go ahead and just take the risk of verbatim because that's worth four points. Um, and a, the delta between, say, two and four versus zero, he was willing to live with. So it was it was just an interesting strategic choice. Now, I, I think he made the right decision in what he was doing. But in the context of an entire meet with an entire team, maybe maybe a different choice would have been warranted. So, I mean, a lot of a lot of this stuff is important to think through. Now, I will say before we move on, and we should move on a little bit because we're running a little bit long, but before we move on, I do want to caution coaches who are listening to us. If you're thinking, holy moly, on a hill, I am, I am never going to be able to think through all of these strategic implications and come up with this stuff prior to IOC, I will give you two things to help you, to give you hope. <laughs> no, number one, 
we are planning to write and there are plans in process right now to write strategic guides to help you develop these strategies, number one. But number two, I think at IOC, we actually are expecting a, a fairly sizable number of teams to register. And as a result of that, and, and actually we do expect some of these teams to be fairly junior. So we now we also are expecting some of the teams to be very senior as well. And so to our goal with IOC is to maximize the enjoyment of the meet for everyone. So what we want to do then is have an initial prelim round to sort people into divisions so that then we can and then and then have those divisions be somewhat flexible. But the idea being that if you if you feel if you've got a rookie team, if you're maybe you've got some younger uh, quizzers, quizzers who uh, maybe this is their first year, or maybe IOC is going to be their first meet even, uh, don't don't stress too much about the strategic stuff. Focus on getting as much memorized as you can uh, with reference if possible, uh, verbatim if possible, but folk, work with your quizzers to get the most memorized. That will be the best way to invest your time and you'll get sorted into a division based on the skill level of your team. And then your team will be able to have the most amount of fun based on maximizing the memorization uh, of their prep time, right? In other words, they will have more fun if they have whatever they have memorized, memorize as well as they can. So review, I think, is going to be, number one, memorize as much as you can. And then number two, review, review, review. I'm reminded of a PNW quizzer who was a rookie at internationals and was not aware of the importance of watching for W's on interrogative questions and was confounded that the only jumps they ever seemed to win were on W interrogative questions. <laughs> right. And I think that bit of information is something that is in age two, at least at internationals, is fairly critical to to be a little bit competitive and kind of start having a good time. I don't think they had a bad time, but I'd say that that's a fairly critical piece of information that could be called strategic. Now, a lot of the other stuff, as far as edges of lift, lift study or uh, voice inflection of the quiz master, that's stuff that, hey, we really want to make top nine out of 30 teams. It's it's of utmost importance for that, but it's not of utmost performance importance to be competitive and have a good time. And I would imagine that a lot of what we're talking about for age three kind of falls in that ladder bucket where you may not be using all of the optimizations available to you, but that doesn't mean you're going to be just completely run over by a team of very similar material knowledge, but knows all of those optimizations. I'm not sure if there's anything in age three that you would consider akin to the watch for w's on interrogatives in age two maybe just the pure fact that it's about maximizing scoring not avoiding errors yeah to a degree i think i don't think there's any secret sauce like don't jump on w's right because don't jump on w's is a very important bit of information to know that is not in the rule book i don't really think there's a lot that's that you would i don't think there's really anything you need to know as an A3 quizzer that's not in the rule book. I think there's some strategies that we're going to be talking about to be able to squeeze out better better point stuff, which I think would be really valuable. But like nothing, I could, I maybe I'm just not thinking of it, but just really nothing rises to that level that would 
overcome the just the you know memorize as many verses as close to verbatim as you can uh sort of deal interesting i don't don't know that i would disagree i could be wrong i just don't i'm too ignorant still um and i don't know that we're gonna know maybe until after ioc even like i i think it's i I don't even think we're gonna know necessarily in playtests i think it's really gonna be we, we're going to discover things at IOC and be like, oh, interesting. We never thought of this before, but if you X, then Y, and that actually gives you a small advantage or something. Um, but I, I don't know what that would be right now. I don't either. Well, shall we talk about basketball? How's our running time? Oh, we're fine. We're nowhere sure. close to last pod. Let's talk about basketball. So, this arose because I was watching a Division Three women's basketball game, and single overtime concluded with a team winning 91-89. to 89. And then the, as the teams were about to shake hands, there was a pause and then a delay, and then it was announced that the winning team's coach had been awarded a technical foul for yelling at the referees, and that the technical free throws awarded to the losing team would occur... Um, within the bounds of overtime. So even though the clock had struck zero, the way that the end of a period is defined, at least in this NCAA basketball game, is when both things happen. The officials have to leave the floor, and the official scorer has to do some magic signature to say that the, the results are final at the scorer's table. And neither of those things had happened. So the losing team got two free throws. They made them both to tie the game, and which meant that we needed double overtime. Well, in the both teams kind of get a timeout before double overtime begins. During that timeout, the now the formerly winning team's head coach, now tied team's head coach, continued to yell at the refs and was awarded his second technical foul, which resulted in an ejection. And then the referees took a very long time making sure they knew whether these technical free throws applied to the end of single overtime or the beginning of double overtime. And so by this time, by the time that the second technical had been awarded, the official scorer had certified the results of single overtime, which meant that double overtime had begun, even though the tip for that period had not happened. So no gameplay had happened for it. But by the definition, it had started so... That team got two technical free throws to start double overtime and then double overtime concluded without very much. Well, there was more incidents, but they're not relevant to this discussion. And it just it caused a lot of discussion around, hey, what defines the end of a period? What defines the start of a period? Because there are many high school leagues where it is illegal to dunk in a pregame, likely because perhaps they want to limit that sort of showboating but it could also be more logistical that dunks can break the backboard and almost no gyms have backup backboards ready to go in any case if a player dunks in pregame a technical foul is awarded to that team resulting in free throws during the beginning of regulation for the other team so there must be something defining the start of a period when a technical foul can be awarded and it made me think of quizzing like both do we have definitions about the start and end of a period? But also, do we have any current recourse? I think we do in age two, but maybe not in age three, for the officials to award some sort of foul or penalty when they deem necessary 
for for any reason they deem necessary versus the only reasons that they are allowed to award such a foul or penalty being enumerated and they have to it has to fall under one of those for them to do it and i kind of wanted to throw that question to you griffin both about well mainly about do you think that there is importance to the health and longevity of a competitive quiz program that the officials do have some subjective leeway to handle a random situation like this and what sort of bound bounds of the 12 career quiz do you think they should apply to? Yeah. And this is a very interesting question because in a three, we've got some competing, well, not competing. We have some philosophical positions that need to be maintained. I think they need to be maintained. Um, I, I could be wrong, but I, I, I'm, I really want them to be, let's say, let's say I really want them to be maintained, right? That don't exist in A2. So for example, in A3, like I've said, the rule book, the, the goal is to have everything be 100% objective. You can't have, therefore, in a 100% a objective rule book, a sort of bucket catch-all foul opportunity for the quiz master that that's sort of ill-defined right or not or fuzzily defined right so you can't say well if a coach is disrespectful or if there's a, a quizzer who's disrespectful that will count as a foul in such a way because like well what does that mean you have to start defining what disrespect means uh and i would just like there be dragons upon dragons all the way down forever right like it, that just that is just something you don't want to unpack because i think it provides way too much power sort of unchecked power to the qm and in rather i would want the the qm to just suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous disrespect when it happens and then have a conversation after the quiz with either the parties involved or the parties involved and the meet director or have a conversation with the meet director after quizzing is done for the day. I think that's a much more appropriate way to handle it, right? Um, the idea is, you know, supposedly we're Christians, supposedly we're going to act like Christians. So theoretically, there shouldn't be disrespect uh, or various similar obnoxious behavior. So this should be a very small sort of event when it happens. And I think the way to deal with it is, you know, hey, if if as a QM you feel disrespected, if it's a coach, just talk to the coach and say, hey, I, I feel that's disrespectful. Could you not do that? You know, kind of stuff. And if that doesn't resolve it, then I, I don't think adding some sort of formal policy in the rule book or points alterations or whatever in the rule book is the way to solve it. I think that just it adds a problem to how we should resolve it. You know, just like go and talk to the person. If that doesn't get fixed, if that doesn't wrap it up, then talk to a slightly larger group of people. Like, like it's usually going to be like one person, right? Uh, or maybe one or two people. And if you've got an issue with them and you talk to them, uh, their response 90% of the time is going to be, oh, I'm sorry, you know, and, 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 and they're going to mean it. And if they, if they, if they don't, apologize or if they're you know if they're not responsive in a way that you think is resolve the issue then it's like okay bring in some other coaches bring in the meet director probably best to do that outside the context of the quiz itself uh probably best to do that like maybe not even at the end of the quiz maybe best to do that during a lunch break or in the evening and talk to the part you know circle up the group of people involved and talk it out and work it out that way um 
obviously you want to try to limit the negativity in the quiz itself um, as much as possible. So you you know if a, if a coach is acting in a disrespectful way, you don't want to embarrass that coach in front of their quizzers if you can avoid it. Uh, similarly, if a quizzer is acting disrespectfully, you don't want to embarrass the quizzer. Talk to the coach about it, maybe during a break of some kind. Um, but I, to me, I think that's the way to handle it, not through some sort of rule book process. I think as 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 Christians, we have that kind of opportunity that doesn't exist in, say, you know, a secular sporting world. Sure, and I think religious or not, it does indicate that. Even rules that consider some of the edges of potential behavior really require some minimum level of decorum. Yes. If the decorum exceeds or is below that minimum level, then everything kind of breaks down in a way that can't be solved with additional rules. Yeah. And so like I might I might want to include a very small sentence or two in the rule book that says something along the lines of like for any reason the 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 quiz magistrate may suspend a quiz and have a private conference with the three coaches or something like that, right? Um just just to 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 provide some sort of rule book way for a QM to be able to handle the situation in a proper respectful way but like in terms of implementing like fouls or point alterations because of it like just that just seems totally not the right way to approach it interesting i i don't know that i disagree but i do think that there is value in there being penalty deterrence yeah yeah and i think i think i think the penalty deterrence is needs to be at the meat level not at the quiz level and it may be one of those things where you know hey this team just isn't invited back you know um or or you you have a i mean because ultimately at the end of the day what's going to ultimately happen right uh it if if something isn't resolved it ought to get raised to the level of the meat director all parties involved should sit down have a conversation pray about it um, break bread together, try to work out a solution. If you can't work out a solution, then maybe it's best to say, well, we, we, we part as friends. We, we part as close to friends as we can. And we just say, well, we're, we're not going to fellowship anymore. And it, and that would be extremely sad. And obviously nobody wants that to happen. But like, to me, it's one of those things where you have a collaborative conversation off the record outside of a quiz away from the quizzers where you're trying to figure out this this sort of thing now if it's a quizzer that's doing this then you have a conversation with the coach um if it's a coach and a quizzer together then you know maybe you bring all those parties together again in private outside the quiz right kind of thing but to me that seems like the the way to handle it is is i I think having a minimum level of decorum is absolutely appropriate is that to be defined. I think there's some, probably some good ideas to defining that. Do I want that in the rule book? I really don't. I I want that to be sort of at the level of fellowship and invitation to future events. Interesting. One thing that I failed to bring up is what about penalties that affect the quiz competition, but that originated from persons outside the quiz competition? most obvious being a coach, right? That is not currently quizzing, but, but it could apply to audience members. 
And I'm reminded of, you know, benches or sidelines have been penalized in team sports. And the team has been awarded um, some sort of foul because their fans have been throwing trash or snowballs onto the field. Yeah. So those are, you know, penalties enacted because, you know, that affect a team because that's you can't penalize the fans meaningfully. Do you think that those sorts of things are necessary, useful, other? I I think I think the quiz uh, the quiz uh, magistrate needs to have the power to eject people from the room and then redo queries if you feel that there's been some sort of um, uh, unacceptable influence, you know, on the, on that particular query. But I really, really, really don't want to foul a team because some random person in the audience was uh, did something bad. Right. So like uh, let's say you've got um, uh, let's say you've got a team up there uh, quizzing uh, and one of uh, the team has a relative who has a psychological condition who shows up, who's in the audience and bursts out some sort of very negative, not appropriate, way below minimum level of decorum sort of thing. I think the quiz magistrate needs to have the power to be able to uh, politely but firmly eject people from the room and then start over a query or whatever to resolve the situation. But ultimately, I think it would be deeply bad to let's say foul the team that was on the stage similarly like something way more innocent or well maybe less innocent um now that i think about it but imagine that there's a coach who whether they are or a parent let's say it's a parent right a non-coach parent uh their quizzer is up on the platform and the parent is mouthing the words of the answer to their quizzer, right? Who is trying to respond to a query. Uh, deeply not okay. What, how do you resolve that, right? Like, I don't think it's a good idea to foul the quizzer. Um, now, I mean, if the quizzer is aware of this and is taking advantage of it, then we have a different conversation. But I mean, I think that's one of those things where you eject the parent, you have a conversation with the coaches, you figure out what you want to do about it. Do we want to restart the entire quiz even, you know, kind of, kind of make those kind of decisions and go from there. Um, but it's, it's not something I want to see formulated into some sort of codified mechanism that, impacts the quizzers unless the quizzers were at fault for something interesting i keep saying interesting because i i agree largely but maybe not fully because my my way of viewing situations like this are i can have empathy for the cause or that it wasn't someone on the stage or or what have you but at the end of the day what i want to protect is the experience for every participant for each of those either 12 or nine quizzers, right, that are currently competing. And so because of that, I it doesn't usually, like, I am not swayed by how reasonable or random or unfortunate something was. I will want to stand up for those participants on the stage. And if it was one team's audience member, I don't have any qualms of penalizing that team, not because I, I am desirous of penalizing the team, but because I see it as protecting the experience for the other two teams. But wait a minute. 
so I agreed with you right up until that last point, right? Like, I think the idea of protecting the experience for the people on the stage, I totally agree with. If it's somebody who happens to be some random, unconnected to any one person, right? Like, so let's say you've got teams A, B, and C from, from churches A, B, and C, right? And you have some audience member from church D who does something, right, to disrupt the quiz versus you have somebody in the audience from church B that disrupts the quiz in some particular way. To me, the penalty should be on that person, not on anybody on the stage, right? To me, like the event was as bad and disruptive to teams uh, A, B, and C, whether that person was from, you know, church B or church D. Uh, and so the, the solution is eject the person and figure out how to make the experience as positive as you can be for those uh, quizzes on the platform. And maybe you have to, you know, circle up the coaches to say like, do we redo just this query? Do we redo the quiz? Where do, where do we, what's the best source of, wh what's the best, you know, path here um, based on whatever it is that, that happened. But the idea of penalizing B just because the person who was negative happens to attend church B, I just, I don't, I don't know that that's particularly fair to the, the quizzers from church B. Fair is definitely an interesting term here because yeah, I don't really know how to, deal with the word fair. I well, think what I okay. want is if I can penalize a team on the stage, I want to because then it serves as a deterrent. But it doesn't serve as a deterrent for anybody else, right? Like like it's not going to deter people in the audience from being disrespectful. Like it's not hurting them, right? I I just I don't I don't necessarily see it as a I I think you want to deter the people by who are going to actually do the thing that's bad, <laughs> not deter the people who didn't have anything to do with the, the thing that's bad. Right. Um, you know, if my dad racks up a lot of debt, um, I shouldn't be on the hook to pay it back. Right. Um, that like, like this, I'm trying to describe this. Like I want to ultimately, I, I guess I bring this back to the mission of a three, right? What's going to encourage the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses. I think if team B is penalized because of something somebody in the audience did because that person happens to attend church B, uh, that's potentially anti-mission. Maybe so. I'm going to refrain from an extremely politically charged <laughs> that would be a hundred percent analogous, but, um, I don't know. Like, I, I think the, the audience member is probably not the most useful example because it almost never happens. True. But if the coach of a team does something, I absolutely want their team to not be treated the same as the other teams because of it. Yeah. And that's that's definitely where we start to get m much closer to my willingness to penalize the team. So if a coach of a team that's actually quizzing starts to do something then yeah, I get a little bit more comfortable with penalizing the team. Right. And like for the audience member, maybe if it was repeated or something, you know, like we're not out here seeking to penalize anyone that we can, but it's just, if you don't like, maybe this is, I mean, this is pretty clearly outing how I feel about things, but if you don't penalize somebody, then there's effectively no difference in good behavior and bad behavior. Yeah, but I think you are penalizing, right? I'm not saying you ignore whatever happened. I'm saying you you kick out the person from the room. Uh, so number one, you're, you're solving the issue, the repetitional problem. Uh, 
and you're also providing something that's pretty darn embarrassing, right? So for, a, you know, a QM to turn around and say, I need you to leave the room, right? That's pretty embarrassing uh, for that, or it ought to be pretty embarrassing for that person. And then ultimately, if it happens again, you know, either in that same uh, room or a different room, uh, the meet director can step in and say, I need you to, to leave the meet. Like you, you are, you are disinvited from this meet. You know, that's, that's, that's pretty significant. Um, and to me, that actually corrects the issue at the source of the issue rather than indirectly through harming a quizzer. Sure. And I might also have the standpoint that it shouldn't be the quiz officials responsibility to keep a certain team's audience members in line. Yeah, Trey. Yeah, fair. I mean, obviously you want the support of the coaching staff um, and the support of the pastors if they're going to be involved and, and all that kind of good stuff. So yeah, I mean, I think I think we're in general agreement there. And here's one other thought. Let's say hypothetically, and this actually is a hypothetical. I never coached a high school soccer team. But if one player arrived late to a game and it's clearly stated that you arrive, you know, five minutes earlier or whatever, mm-hmm. I think the most effective way to ensure that it doesn't happen again is you have everybody do something extra, like run laps at next practice, except the person that was late. <laughs> I think that is by far the most effective deterrent. And so that kind of principle leaks over into, hey, like maybe you're a random parent or even just a, a friend and something that you said negatively affected the kids you came to watch perform. Like I would never want to do that again. I mean, that might to me, that would feel worse than any embarrassment of being kicked out. But that's just me. I think it, I think you are right that you would feel worse, but that's because you would probably never intentionally do that behavior. I think the person who would intentionally do that behavior, I mean, maybe wouldn't feel worse. Interesting. That that could have very well. Well, and on that bombshell, we probably should wrap things up here. Otherwise, we're going to have another two hour episode. <laughs> but uh, this has been great. A good, uh, good conversation here. So uh, we very much want to hear from everybody who is listening. If you have any disagreements with anything that either Scott or I have said or any kind of feedback, we'd really love to hear from you. Please email us at IQ at CBQZ.org. You can and should follow us on Twitter. Our account is at Inside Quizzing. And we also kind of sort of chat in near real time on the Slack uh, channel Inside Quizzing. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening. And thank you, Scott. Thank you to all of our faithful listeners that I'm sure are in the hundreds of thousands by now. (laughs) And thank you for co-hosting Griffin. Griffin.